I'm going to jump right up here with your same enthusiasm. All right. See if anybody else joins us. Oh, here they come. I thought it was just going to be just us. There's a few more coming. All right. I want to tell you a story this morning that's especially out of the book of Luke. It's only found in the book of Luke. Now, Luke's special. Luke tells us about Jesus especially, that he's a real human. He was a, he's God, and yet he's a real person just like us. He was born, and he, he grew up. He was a young boy. He, he grew. He was a teenager, and he grew into a young man. And the story I want to tell you about is when Jesus was 12. Is anybody here 12 yet? Not 12 yet, okay? All right. Almost 12, but not quite. Okay. So, so there's something, something about this ahead of you still, you can maybe identify with Jesus. Okay, Jesus is 12 years old, and his parents used to come. The biggest celebration of the year was Passover. And we're actually going to have a Passover celebration at our church mm, two weeks and two Sundays. But every year in Jerusalem was a big Passover party, okay? So everybody would try to come if they could, and Jesus' family always came to the Passover party at the temple in Jerusalem, okay? And they, they brought Jesus with. He was 12 years old, and they brought him with them. And um, then they went to leave. You know, it was one of those, there lots of people in town, and everybody's making, getting in, and they're traveling all back, and they traveled as a big group from their hometown. And uh, so they're getting, they're leaving Jerusalem, and they forgot to bring Jesus home with them. Can you believe it? Forgetting Jesus. He's only 12 years old and they left him. I think it was one of those things. That, do your parents ever drive to church in two different cars? Our family does that. Our family does that sometimes. And, and uh, you know, we come in two different cars and then my wife leaves and she thinks Daniel's going to ride with me home. This is when Daniel was still home with us. And I'm thinking, well, Daniel already went with his mom and, I, and, and, and his mom goes home and then I go home and poor Daniel's stuck. Did your parents ever leave you somewhere like that? Yeah. Oh, don't tell me. Don't tell us. Right in front of you. It would be terribly embarrassing. Jesus' parents forgot him. And it wasn't until like later on at, at night and they, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. And they realized he was. And so they had to come back to Jerusalem and look for him. And they're looking and they're looking. It took them three days to find him. Okay? Three days to find him. And, and you know where they found him? Where do you think they found him? In the temple. That's, you've heard this story before. They found him. You have. They found him in the temple. And oh, his mama was a little upset. Not that he was a temple, in the temple, but that he wasn't with them. He said, what have you done to us? You make us, I can just hear this Jewish mother going on and on. You make us look for you all these days and we're so worried. And, and he says to her very calmly, Jesus says to his mom, and he's only 12, mind you. And he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Well, if I wasn't at home in Nazareth, then I must be at my father's house in Jerusalem, which means the temple, because God was his father. And his parents kind of scratched their heads at that. They didn't quite get it. And yet Jesus went nicely home with them, and, it, and the Bible says he submitted himself to them. Now, I can tell you, there may be times now, there may be times now when there's something's really clear to you, but your parents don't quite get it. Does that ever happen? Something that's really clear to you, but your parents don't quite get it? 
Don't you love it? <laughs> but one of the things we see in Luke is over and over and over again, we get an example of how it is that we can live as as a person, the way Jesus lived as a person. And Jesus, even though he was God and we are not, he knew even more than his parents. Every 12-year-old thinks that. But with Jesus, it was true. And yet, even though Jesus knew way more than his parents, he went and he, the Bible says he was submissive to them. He Submissive. What does submissive mean? Do you know? I didn't think you did. You're only seven, exactly. You're not 12 yet. But it means, it, it means this. It means he did what his parents told him to do. Even when he knew more than his parents, even if you think you know better, still, when you're 12 or when you're younger than 12, what do you do? One of the ways about living well as a human is doing what your parents tell you to do. All right, you serve God by following your parents. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself did that, right? So you take how you, how you serve your parents, how you obey your parents, how you listen, listen to your parents. That is how you also worship God, okay? All right, so go on back to those parents that you listen to so well, and they are going to pay me later. <clears throat> All right, you know... Uh, I, I, I went, went to the movie on Friday, saw Noah's afternoon matinee. We wanted to beat the crowd, and so we went two by two, Julie and I. We went to Noah. That was a very interesting movie, a very, a very intriguing Noah. It was not the Noah of the Bible, but it was a very interesting Noah just the same. Probably wasn't the best movie I've seen, and uh, I, I, I didn't sit there with my, with my Bible, you know, comparing along the way. Okay, the movie's never like the book. And as you would expect, the book is better. But it really wasn't the, the real Noah. That bugged me along the way. But it reminded me that often our, our um, caricature of God our caricature of Jesus is not the real Jesus. I have these people come knock on my door, and they, they want to talk to me about Jesus. And I said, oh, you believe? Yes, we believe in Jesus. I said, well, I believe in Jesus. And I tell me, which Jesus do you believe in? And they say, oh, well, there's only one Jesus. Well, no. There's Jesus who's running all over the countryside. Everybody's got an idea about Jesus. And we, if, if they make movies, then it gets even worse from there. But what is the real Jesus, the historical Jesus? Luke, Luke pays, takes special attention to give us a real historical human Jesus. That's what I want to talk about today. Jesus the real. Jesus a man on God's mission. There's been a lot of talk about this along the way. There was something called the Jesus Seminar that actually should have been called the Un-Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar tried to, tried to boil down and, and come to terms with what did Jesus really say compared to what the Bible says that he said. And I think they came up with two or three sayings out of the New Testament that are probably actually maybe what Jesus said. So those of you with red-letter Bibles, you would have been in trouble with this group. 
Oh, they, would, they would have changed a lot of that red letters to something else. But um, the, the Jesus Seminar, the Peter Jennings, I don't know if you remember several years ago, Peter Jennings was on his search for the historical Jesus. He searched all over. He searched high and low. The one place he didn't really spend a lot of time looking was in the Gospel of Luke. There are other Gospels that are floating. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? There's a Gospel of Mary. There's a Gospel of Peter. I guess there ought to be a Gospel of Paul. But I, I haven't heard of that one. But there's all these other Gospels that are proposed to be written by people of the same first century era, people around Jesus, and yet they present a very different Jesus than the one we know in our Bibles. Luke took special care to give us the real historical Jesus. Now, that's important because it, it, it begs the question, like those, like those folks knocking on my door, we, we come with a Jesus, we have in mind a Jesus, we have confidence in a Jesus, but which Jesus do we have confidence in? Which Jesus do I put my faith in? Is it the real Jesus or is it another Jesus? Is it a Jesus of my own manufacture? You see, Luke took special care, and let me turn your attention to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, if you're using a pew Bible, we're on page 855, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. So says Luke, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, even as Peter told Mark and Paul told Luke, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that, and here's the purpose, here's the reason, this is what Luke is, intended, is intending to give us, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Luke says, I want you, most excellent Theophilus, and, and Theophilus, the word, the name means lover of God. It's a Roman name. He perhaps is a Roman official because he's addressed as the most excellent, which is a term that elsewhere in Luke is used to refer to Roman officials, high-ranking officials. Maybe Luke and Acts were written as background material, even some sort of a legal brief to explain to officials in Rome what had been going on with Paul. Luke and Acts go together, as we'll see when we get to the book of Acts. That's kind of my own personal private theory, that I think this is background to those who were friendly to the faith but needed a better documentation of it. And Acts then goes on to show a very favorable interaction between Paul and the Roman officials throughout the empire, that he's not in conflict with Rome as he proclaims his gospel. But be that as it may, Luke wants him to know with certainty. This is the most historical, purporting to be especially accurate about historical times and places and people. This is the real Jesus. And the, and the, and the, and the, the, the thrust here is that Jesus is not simply an idea that God has given us. Jesus is not simply a worldview. Jesus is not some quasi-thing we believe in. Jesus is is real. The one we believe in is the real creator who existed from before the foundation of the world. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. But, especially in Luke, he steps into time. From eternity, he steps down into time. 
And the incarnation that Paul writes about in Philippians 3 is is lived out before us, especially in the book of Luke. Luke wants us to know very clearly that as real as he is, he is really human. It's going to be important. It ought to be important to you because you're really human. Does Does Jesus really get you and your life? Does Jesus really get the corner of the world that you're living in? Does he get the kind of things that, 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 that fly at you day by day and week by week? Does he get the turmoil that whirls around inside your soul, the things that bounce around inside your mind? Does Jesus get that? The Bible tells us he does, that he as is, is as genuinely human as you are. Your Savior knows you. You could say that he knows you like Jesus knew his parents better than they did. He knows you better than you do. He is really and fully human. Let me just kind of develop that thought a little bit. In the first three chapters of the Gospel of Luke, you especially get this real historical Jesus. As Jesus is an idea, he is a real historical person. There are more historically definitive dates and personalities in the Gospel of Luke in these early chapters than anywhere else. Augustus and Herod, uh, some guy who was ruling Syria called Quirinius, who we now know ruled Syria two different times. What seemed to not add up date-wise does add up in ways that uh, historical records only recently have more fully revealed. The, he talks about this census, uh, and that was, that, that, that was confusing for some time until archaeology again further defines and, ex- and shows what was going on with the census that the Roman Emperor Augustus. In, in the book of Luke, more than the others, characters, real people are fleshed out. It's not just that Jesus is real. Jesus is a real person among real people. He steps into humanity and lives real humanity. You get in, introduced to interesting people, and, 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 and there's character development there, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, this elderly couple that have never had a child, and they're going to have a baby. He can't believe it. This is the reverse of Abraham and Sarah. It was, it was Abraham who believed, and Sarah laughed. And here it's, it's Zechariah who laughs, and he doesn't talk again until after the baby's born. But, but we get this, this development of these, of these kind of often a corner people. We find out that, that John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin or second cousin. or I get that all confused, but we can call him cousin, can't we? That Jesus, is, Jesus and John are related. We, we get to know Mary at a whole different level. Oftentimes, if, if other religions sometimes lift Mary way up and call her things like the co-redeemer or the mother of God... Well, sometimes we might downplay this woman that God chose who was, for a young woman, imagine her, a very godly woman. We get a glimpse into her heart in what's called in Latin the Magnificant. This this praise that she gives to God, what she says there, what she includes in depth of Scripture and God's truth, it's amazing. So Mary Mary sort of comes up. We find out that this couple is is, is a poor couple. They bring as an offering for their son two doves rather than the normal offering. That was the offering that the poor would bring. We're introduced to another elderly couple, seemingly insignificant couple, people that most folks didn't really pay attention to anymore. Very advanced in years, Anna and Simeon. They take a front front row um, 
seat. Well, it's not a front row seat. They actually step up onto the stage, and they have something to say concerning this child and to his parents. Real people, real life, lived out, fleshed out for us in these first three chapters. There's a, there's a verse in Hebrews. I put it in your notes. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, blood Jesus himself partook of the same things. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be among human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You know, I, I, I said something to people a couple different times this week, and each time I said it, I got one of those funny looks like, I don't think that's true. That doesn't sound quite right. So, so fasten your seatbelt. You ready? In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus redeems humanity twice. Did you get that? You don't know what I meant by that. So this time, I'm Jesus and you're the parents, okay? It's just, we're going to role play. Oh, I, I shouldn't have said that. That's, that's weird. But what I mean by that, Jesus redeems humanity first in his life. Not that his life lived good enough is enough to lift us up and to save us. No. But Jesus redeems humanity before God. Jesus comes and lives that life perfectly in humanity. He lives as God's man on God's mission perfectly. He lifts humanity back up out of the gutter, back up to what humanity was supposed to be so that God, as God is watching this play out, he gathers the angels around them and he says, look, watch this. He says, you see, that's why I made them. That's what they're supposed to be. That's what I made them to be. It's seen in Jesus. You want to know what the godliest humanity looks like? We see it in the face of Christ. We see it in his life. We hear it in his words. We see it in his actions. We feel it in his compassion. So there's something for us to learn in the Gospel of Luke about what it is to be authentically human. What it is to be human in a godly way. He shows us that. He redeems humanity. He lifts humanity back up that this is what humanity is for. This is what humanity is to be. But we can't be that. The disciples cannot be that in the Gospel of Luke. And, and Jesus also dies for us. He lives for humanity. He dies for us. And in his death for us, he pays the price that we could not pay. He pays the debt that we owed. He dies in our place. He dies for our guilt to redeem us, each one, individually all who believe on him. To accept then his death in my place, that is salvation. He's redeemed humanity as a whole before heaven in his own living it perfectly. He redeems us to live in his life individually when we believe on his death for us. That's what I mean when I say in Luke, he redeems humanity twice. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So I want us to consider this morning, out of the book of Luke, the real Jesus. I want us to think about that real Jesus who not only himself partook of real humanity, as the first three chapters show, but he lived out that humanity intentionally on God's mission. The, the, uh, the closing statement of that section in Hebrews that I quoted earlier, verse 18 says, because he himself has suffered when tempted 
as a real human. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what rattles around in your head. He hears temptation from the enemy as well in the Gospel of Luke. He is able then to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. You see, it matters that Jesus is real. It matters that Jesus knows you. It matters that Jesus gets me because he's able to come to my help. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, man, why on earth do they do that? He knows why we do that. He gets it. He himself didn't do that, but he gets it. He knows our frailties. He knows our weakness. And he has resisted the same kinds of temptations you and I face. That is this real man, this human Jesus, but this perfect human that's how we're introduced to him in chapter 4. Look over in chapter 4. I want us to believe in the real Jesus, and I want us to see that this real Jesus is a Jesus who lives intentionally as God's man on God's mission. In Jesus, we see a man on mission. And I quoted several, again, you have these, uh, kind of a summary through the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 2, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I'm here for a purpose. Where, Where else would you find me? He says to his parents, but in my father's house. When he's on his way, the core of the book of Luke is introduced in chapter 9 when it says twice within a couple of verses, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face, some, some translations read, he set his face like a flint because that's, that's unpacking the, the verb a little more. It's that firmly, that fixed focus. There's that intention of life which, which propels him to Jerusalem. He must be there. He must go there. And he knows what he's going there for. It's not just to confront the Pharisees. It's not just to teach people. He's going to Jerusalem to die. So center of the book, and it introduces the core of, the, of Luke that is unique to Luke. I'll get there in a minute. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And his ministry is summarized by Luke in chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who were lost. He is God's man. As a man, he can save. As God's man, he can save us. Because as God's man, he can die for us. As God's man, he can lift us. He is God's man on God's mission, which, as I'll I'll point to as we go on, you and I are lifted into. You and I are called to. You and I are called to be God's people on God's mission. Not in our own strength, but as he did it, which which, which brings us back to chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 contains the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is tempted Tempted in all things, even as we are, Hebrews says, yet without sin. He's tempted in the same ways that we are, and yet he resists that temptation. Well, how does that happen? Well, first of all, how does Jesus live? How how does Jesus go? There's something that you find that keeps reoccurring in chapter 4. Look at verse 1 of of Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit... This is not a phrase I wouldn't be, I'm surprised to see Luke using because Paul uses it. Paul tells us as Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And he says Jesus was. To be filled, to be, un, to be controlled, to be under the influence of the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit is then to follow and be led by the Spirit. He returned full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
And then in verse 14, he returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. He follows the Spirit's leading and direction. And he is empowered by the Spirit of the living God. All of those things, as you continue to read the New Testament, all of those things are true for believers or should be. We are told to be filled by the Spirit. We are told to follow the leading and the direction and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. We are empowered. In fact, the Spirit gives us these grace gifts to use within the church. He empowers us for His glory within the church and beyond to the rest of the world. God has empowered us. That, that we serve not by our own strength, but it is God who works in us. It is God who empowers us. So as you read chapter 4, think about that in a, different, a slightly different light. What is genuinely true about Jesus facing temptation by the enemy as a human ought to. I'm not trying to pull you up by your bootstraps here. I'm saying Jesus did for us, but we could not do. And now by the Spirit within us has enabled us to follow in his steps. So he's full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit. Jesus as a perfect man lives not in his own strength because he's God, but he lives as a perfect man by the power of the Spirit. He lives as a perfect man in the light of God's Word. How does he, how does he answer the enemy? The enemy tempts him three different times. I'm not even going to go into the temptations. I don't want to take the time there, but you've got it in chapter 4. Three different temptations, and each one of them He answers with what God has said, not what he thinks God said, not like Eve did in the garden, taking a paraphrase of what God said and kind of adding to it a little bit, sowing some doubt, some some ambiguity into what did God really say. Jesus replies to the enemy's temptation by quoting accurately God's truth. And he's not merely telling Satan that. He's answering Satan, but he's affirming his own resoluteness in the matter. This is what I will do because this is what God has said. No, this is what God has really said. No matter what you, the enemy, would say, hasn't God said this or that? It was the same kind of temptations like Eve had in the garden, and yet Jesus answers them. How many times did Jesus answer them? How many times? Luke chapter 4, three times. Three times he answers better than in the garden. Oh boy. Now go forward to the end of the Gospel of Luke when he warns Peter, Peter, before the cock will crow, you will deny me. How many times? Three times. Jesus can do it. Peter can't do it. Why not? Well, Peter's still a broken, sinful man. He's still among those disciples that just don't get it. And yet, Jesus is going to tell him, just wait. wait. After his resurrection, he tells him, wait until I send you power from on high. Wait until I send you my spirit. And then you open the book of Acts. There's, there's, there's part two. There's the sequel. For if, if Luke was writing a movie script, but he didn't. Then, then Acts chapter 2 In Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4, you see a very different Peter, don't you? This is post-resurrection Peter. 
This is post-resurrection restored and lifted by God's grace, Peter. But not only that, what is it that makes Peter answer so clearly and so strongly and to stand when he has so much more to lose than previously when when he was intimidated by a servant girl in a courtyard? He's standing before thousands. And he's standing before the Sanhedrin. He could be arrested there. He's in the place where Jesus stood before he was crucified. And how does he... Well, if we flipped over to Acts chapter 4, very, very, very briefly. Acts chapter 4 in verse 8. And they're questioning Peter and John. In verse 8, Acts chapter 4, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, There's the answer. Here is a man who we've already seen is not the strongest of men, is not the most reliable of men, is a man like you and I who can be warned in advance, you'll fail here, and and insist, no, I never would, and yet does. But here is a man empowered by the Spirit of the living God in the same way that you and I as believers Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Now here is a man who is able to stand before anybody and everybody and proclaim clearly, being filled by the Spirit, he's got an answer. He's got an answer. The way that Jesus lives, starting in chapter 4, is the way that you and I live. Jesus didn't do it magically differently because he was God in flesh. He lived perfect humanity by the same means that he has left with us. He has given us his spirit. He has given to us the word of God that we can be as sure as he was sure. This is what God has said. This is what I can stand on. And I am indwelt. I am strengthened. I am empowered. I am filled. I am led if I will but follow if I will be submissive to my Father in the same way that I encourage the children, that I will walk in that same place of power, led by the Spirit of the living God. You and I can live. You and I can live as God's own on God's mission. Chapter 4 is an interesting chapter because it ends... With, uh, after, after, the, after the temptation, then Jesus goes to, goes to Galilee. And he goes, in verse 14, I said, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him is throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Everybody is loving this. Everybody's excited. Man, this man sent from God, and he's teaching us, and look at the signs that he's doing. This is wonderful. But it doesn't take long. They hear him, and then they don't hear him. They embrace him, and then very quickly they reject him. You will have both experiences. If you are God's man on God's mission, if you are God's woman on God's mission, if you are the servant of the living God, in this weak humanity, empowered by the Spirit, taking his word, you will be both applauded and ridiculed. You will be both embraced and rejected. You will be appreciated and you will be scorned. That will happen. It happened to God's perfect man. Why would it be any less for us? I would just take Peter's advice and say, well, if I'm going to be ridiculed, if I'm going to be criticized, if I'm going to be rejected, let's make sure it's because of Christ in me and not because of me. 
in me. There's plenty of me not to like. But let's, be, let's make what they don't like, let that be Christ in me rather than merely me. There is a real Jesus. The real historical Jesus that we believe in. This Jesus who lived intentionally on God's own mission and lifts us to do the same thing, to live what I call incarnationally, in real life. To live incarnationally, what is that? That's something we talk about in mission circles a lot, to live incarnationally. And it borrows out of Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He who, who humbled himself, who thought it not something to be clung on to his equality with God, but he, he emptied himself of his glory. He stepped down from heaven. He stepped into humanity. He took upon himself the, the form of a servant came in the likeness of men, humbled himself in obedience even unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself. The glory of God was seen incarnate, incarnate. It's a Latin word means flesh, in humanity. The glory of God was seen in humanity, and God's intention is that still would be so. God's intention is in your life and in mine, by the Spirit of the living God within us, we would live out the Word and the will of God. They would see the glory of the face of Christ even in us. What is it to live incarnationally? What does it look like? Well, there's a unique section. If Luke is the gospel that shows Jesus especially as perfectly human, really human, real, if Luke is the gospel that shows us that, then I said, okay, well, what is the unique aspect about Luke, and what do we see there? In the book of Luke, the core of the book is unique to Luke. From cha- the end of chapter 9 all the way through chapter 17, you have what's, what, what some have called the Perea parables. This was the journey of Jesus from Galilee through the region of Perea and Samaria back down to Jerusalem on his last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem before his crucifixion. The, the other Gospels pass over that, that, that particular season very, very quickly. John, interestingly enough, the Gospel of Jesus in his divinity, spends all of his time, Jesus as, as God, spends his time prior to the crucifixion talking about, in the upper room with his disciples, preparing the disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit is going to be their help. The Spirit of the living God is also going to be in them as children of God. Luke unpacks that same preparatory discipleship, preparing his followers to live following him. He does it somewhat differently. He does it in the rub of real life. And I want to hurry here, but this is where it gets practical, so I don't want to go too quickly. In chapters 10 to 17, I want to encourage you to read those chapters again with this framework in mind. First of all, Jesus shows his disciples how to live incarnationally in real life with other people. And that's hard enough. Now there are several different stories, occasions, and parables that Jesus used, and I I gathered them together and I sorted them into these four categories. So we're not going to go in order, we're going to go by category. First of all, with people. There's the story of Mary and Martha. Luke is the only one that shows of the criticism of Martha uh, toward her sister Mary. Jesus Won't you tell her to help me? She's just sitting there. I'm doing all this work by myself. 
Why is it that we, rather than being content in our lot, in our service to the Lord, why is it that we must measure and compare ourselves to one another and to others? Why can I not merely, merely offer what I will offer before the Lord and seek to help other people do the same rather than critiquing their service of him? It's interesting, Jesus turns the thing upside down. Mary's expecting, or, or rather Martha's expecting at least a pat on the back, if not her sister being ordered into the kitchen. And Jesus says, she's actually chosen the better thing, you know, to sit at my feet and to be taught She's only, Martha, you're busy with so, one thing was needed. You know, just a sandwich could have been fine. The whole spread wasn't necessary. Mary has, 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 has taken a simpler path, and it's not going to be taken from her. Why do we need to criticize one another to feel a better, about, better about our own and more worthy of our own work? Jesus tells his disciples that he didn't come to unite families. Families are going to be divided. If if the gospel is real, why don't my children believe? If the gospel is real, why don't my parents believe? If the gospel... Do you have that angst in your family? Jesus had it in his own family. His own brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. But he tells his disciple there's going to be that division. You're going to have it in family life. You're going to have it amidst those who serve. The disciples themselves argue amongst themselves about who is the greatest. Wow. With Jesus standing right there, they're arguing about themselves. Who is the greatest? Well, that tells us where their eyes are not. This is discipleship lived out in real life with real people. Real, real discipleship is lived out incarnationally by prayer. If we are indeed dependent on the Holy Spirit, if we can live in this, in this manner of life that Jesus has showed us, we're going to live it by faith. We're going to live it by the power of the Spirit within us, then we're going to live it by prayer. And he contrasts our idea of prayer. We have our caricature of Jesus. We have our caricature of prayer. He, he contrasts the story, the story of a, a friend comes. And he's inconvenient. He comes late at night, and so, and, and so the man wasn't ready to host his friend, so he goes to his neighbor to get some food so that he, can, he can put some food down in front of his, his friend who had come so late into the evening. And he knocks on his door, and he... Well, his neighbor doesn't even want to help him because he keeps knocking. It's not a good time, but he keeps knocking. He keeps pestering him because he needs something to, to, to give to this traveler who has come to visit him. And so finally the neighbor gives him something because, man, would you just quit bothering me? And he says, is that the way you think that your heavenly father hears your prayers? That if you just nag him long enough... Is, is God like that magistrate that the woman keeps going to and going to? And though he doesn't fear God or men, he finally gives her what she wants because he doesn't want to keep being bothered by her. Is that how you perceive God? Rather than a loving father who knows how to give his children good gifts. He gives the example of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Humility without pretense. He, told, he says, this is how you pray. Not like that Pharisee who, who, who lifted his hands up to heaven and said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that miserable wretch. Now you don't pray like that, but sometimes we think like that. Don't we? Sometimes we think like that. People around us. The tax collector instead pray. He doesn't dare lift his eyes to heaven. He simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
didn't Micah say that what God expects of us is that we would do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? The tax collector lives that out better than the religious man. So warning to us. Oh, we live incarnationally in real life at work. Jesus had many examples of the manager, the steward. He, he used the example of a faithful servant, a faithful worker who waits up for his master and, 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 and when his master, his boss, hasn't showed up, he doesn't relax and quit working and take it easy and play, play games on the computer. No, he's busy about what his boss left him to do and when his boss comes, no matter when he comes, he's going to find him faithfully discharging his duties. That's an example that Jesus used. He said, he said, disciples waiting for my return, live like that. The example of faithfulness in the workaday world, that can be worship to God, faithfully discharging the duties that I've been given. He says, you know, the, the, the people of this world, the managers of this world, he gives another example of a manager. This guy's about to be fired. So what does he do? He says, man, I'm too old to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. How am I going to provide for myself after I have been fired, after I've been let go? So he says, I know what I'll do. He calls all the people in who, who owe his, 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 his boss money on all these different accounts. And he says, how much do you owe? He said, well, I owe 80 barrels of whatever. Well, well, quick, write down 60. How much do you owe? Well, I owe 120 of these. Well, quick, write down 75. And, and he, he, he discounts every account. He, he, he writes down every bill so that they owe his master. He is saving these guys fortunes. And they're going to remember it. So that when his, his boss lets him go and he has no means of support, well, he has already paved the way that these other who are, who are indebted to him, who are grateful for him for what he still had the power to do when he was in charge of the accounts, his last acts were currying favor with them. And they're going to happily receive him in. They're going to look after him. This is how Washington and the K Street lobbyists work. And I'm always surprised that Jesus uses that as a good example. Be like that. What? In this way. He says the, 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 the men of this world are shrewder than the sons of the kingdom. They know how to use the resources of this passing moment to better their future. Better than you and I do. We must use the resources that we have in this passing moment, not for this present moment, but we must use these resources in this passing moment for an eternal future. And he goes on in that story to use what you have at hand to welcome people not into future earthly homes, but into heavenly homes, into eternal dwelling places. Whatever we have in this world, we use these resources to welcome people into eternal homes, into eternity. That's how he puts before us. He uses examples out of the work-a-day world that, that God, like a businessman, expects a return on his, on, on, on his investment. He, he, he gives the example of the rich fool who builds a barn. What am I going to do? i got all this stuff. I know I'll get a bigger house. I know I'll add another garage. I know I'll build a bigger barn. And then I'm going to have all this stuff. And then I can say, relax, take it easy, soul. You've earned your rest. Enjoy all the stuff you have. And he says, you fool, this very night, your life will be required of you. And all that stuff is just going to rot out there in the barn. It's just going to rot. 
out there in the barn. One of the men, I was sharing that Wednesday night, and one of the men gave an example. He, he, in his younger days, when he had the energy to do it, he worked seven days a week. Seven days a week, he was busy about this, and when he wasn't on that job, he was doing this other job, a side, side business that he had around the side, and seven days a week, he was involved in this business. And he, and he realized he was neglecting his wife, he was neglecting his family, and he, and he pulled back from that. And he limited that. He said, five days a week I'm going to work, and I'm going to give some margin. I'm going to spend some time with my family. And he found out that he did just as well. He had as, as, an, enough, as, he was as comfortable as he was before. He had the same margin that he had before when he worked five days instead of seven. Now I do the math, and it doesn't quite add up in all of those ways. But he said, I didn't need to give myself to per the pursuit of success in this, in this life, to dial back, to live for things that matter more. Finally, to live in mercy. Over and over, there's these examples. We can go back to the Noah movie here. He compares, Jesus compares how people would care for their donkey, how they would care for their animals compared to how they would not care for humans. You would lift your donkey out of the well, but you would not lift a finger to help remove one of these people's burdens. This person who's been, who's been sick or crippled all of these years, you wouldn't lift a finger to help them on the Sabbath, but you'd lift your own donkey out of the well if it were stuck. It reminded me of the, of the Noah movie again. Noah seems to have a whole, in, well, that, that movie version of Noah has a lot more concern for the animals than he does for humanity, even for his own family, even for his own grandchildren. It's a weird twist on Noah. And yet, have you ever taken your doggy to the dentist? What kind of care do we give our animals and yet we see the person along the road in need. And we know, one of the guys pointed this out on Wednesday night, he said, we know that many of those or some of those needs are not legitimate. Some of them are running a scam. Some of the, some of the calls we get for help with the church are running a scam. We know that. But the danger is we use the knowledge that some of them are running a scam to not help any of them. And why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be taken advantage of? Why not now and again be scammed because I'm taking the chance to help somebody else in need? If we would care for our animals, how, if we would care for our pets, how much more? How much more would we care for people around us made in the image of God? Luke, Luke is the gospel, the only gospel that has the Good Samaritan. But not all people around us in need are poor people. Luke is the only gospel that has the tax collector, a wealthy man, Zacchaeus, who climbs up in a tree because he wants to see this famous Jesus as he's going by. And Luke is the one that records it, that Jesus stops there. Jesus notices the needy man along the side of the road who happens to be a rich man rather than a poor man. And he says, buddy, I'm coming to your house today and you have no idea what's coming. Oh, that we would... Come alongside the people who we come alongside day to day in real life. We are really human. We live in the real broken humanity that's around us. We can live that something like Jesus. Oh, I cannot be Jesus, but something of Jesus can be seen in me. Walking in his word, walking and living and being filled by the power of his spirit, I can step into that humanity that Jesus lifted up as God's man on God's mission. You and I have been called to the same.
You and I have been called to the same. We have been given the privilege of living in, living in this thing we call the Christian life because it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? Lord, would you... Would you um, Remind us again of, of the real Jesus that we believe in. This is not an idea. This is not a concept. This is not our own best caricature of God. But you have showed yourself clearly. You've showed yourself plainly. You have showed yourself in humanity who you are and what you intended humanity to be like. We can't do that ourselves. We cannot be like Jesus but Lord, you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have lifted us up in the resurrection of your Son, called us to be different, called us to be new. Lord, we want to live there. We want to live there here. Father, perhaps today, if not today, tomorrow, would you put before our faces a situation, a circumstance, an opportunity where we could show something of the love and the truth of Christ to someone around us in need. Whatever that need looks like, Lord, would you cause us to have the courage to live new in this real life where you've set us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.